supposed to be Saturday? What day is it today? Wednesday. Exactly. Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falcons. I'm the Falcon Screen, and we're joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Peace out, yo. And freelance writer and critic Virat Nehru. Yeah, just peace. So we are peace, and we are still self-distancing, and we are we have each other in our Zoom screens, but we are recording from our respective abodes. Uh, a lot's happened in the past week uh, in the world of streaming film. We've been watching a lot of zoom movies you guys have been having the co-watches they've been pretty fun yeah zooming zooming in you know zoom 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 we watched Joseph zoom 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 master we, we're all a master ad yeah zoom, zoom, yeah zoom. well i watched cool as ice the vanilla ice movie how, how is it uh terrible but terribly yeah. fun nice yeah That's what I would hope wait for. what there's a vanilla yeah there's a vanilla ice movie from the early 90s called cool as ice He's basically playing himself and he's on his next level. The famous line is, or the infamous line is, hey, words of wisdom, drop that zero, get with the hero. And as someone whose go-to karaoke song is Ice Ice Baby, this was a pure joy. Okay, I I think we know a lot more about you just in five seconds than I've known my entire life. And I'm pretty scared now, Glenn. I don't think I want to know more about you. No, I don't think anyone wants to know more about this. We want to clarify, viewers, we are, listeners, we are not talking about Vanilla Ice on this episode. We are talking stream. We're talking Howard Hawks. We're talking about, we're finally going back to pre-50s, even pre-40s films, talking about classic era Hollywood, classic cinema. We're covering Yeah, Star real Star movies. Baby, His Girl Friday, Big Sleep, uh, Gentlemen of Blondes, Rio Bravo. Five, oh, sorry, six, six films which we picked out as classic representative films of different aspects of his filmography. Yeah, we'll be talking about a few of these others in passing, but those are the six we really want to focus on. Very broad, spanning three decades of incredible filmmaking. Uh, before we get into that, we want to talk a bit about news of the week. And we're recording this Tuesday night. This is obviously going to air Wednesday, but the, film, the Australian film world received some uh, not unexpected, but lousy news this week in that the Melbourne International Film Festival, which was scheduled for a run from August 6th through 23rd, for the first time was cancelled. The 2020 run, we go every year. I've been going since 2015. We absolutely love it. And while the festival indicated that they'll be looking to still reach out to audiences, um, try new ways to engage with um, patrons and the de- dedicated, the festival in traditional form will not run in August. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's such a bummer. It's a bummer, it, but August is really late for stuff to be cancelled now. I suppose with the social distancing rules, it's maybe just too hard for them to actually organise a festival. Um, a lot yeah. of events that far out have been waiting to see how things will pan out um, before making the big call. Hilariously to me, the Cannes Film Festival is still pretending they might go ahead at the end of June or the beginning of July. Um, oh, I think, yeah. Yeah, I think they scheduled it for like a month later, which wasn't really done. Yeah, ridiculous, right? I think the fact that MIF, which isn't being held in Europe, um, is cancelled now, and it was it's said to happen a month after the latest date for Khan, um, shows how serious the situation is, and also how unrealistic the idea that we're going to be going to any film festivals this year really is. I mean, we we could even see the next really big one, Venice, cancelled. That doesn't take place again around the same time as MIF. Actually, that takes place at the end of August into early September. 
It's a sad, annoying self-straining set of affairs. Um, up till now, the latest film festival to be cancelled or postponed, I should say, was Revelation, which was scheduled to take place in the first week of July. There are a number of festivals that are scheduled to take place. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, a few others in July, August. Vision Splendor is still slated for the end of June. A lot of these festivals, which are smaller, don't require the organisational heft that MIP does. So we can understand why that. The Sydney Film Festival wants to cancel some months out, but it certainly doesn't bode well. Uh, given that there has been a cancellation this far out, and we hope that um, in the coming months that other festivals can either continue to run or that festivals and places like MIF can um, adapt and as soon as possible either bring films to us in a new form or potentially reschedule for as soon as possible later in the year. But as Chris alluded to, at this point, it's still very up in the air. We don't know. We just don't know. Mm. Um, the other big news of this week is that Artemis Fowl will be dropping on, which we were all waiting to see in the cinemas, will be dropping on Disney+. Plus. This is very significant because we speculated earlier in the year that studios may start dropping some big temple items rather than just delaying and waiting for a release later in the year or later next year. Certainly Marvel have pushed a lot of their release dates back by a year. But this, see, this, by my reckoning, is the first really big, and I'm talking $100 million plus movie, yeah. that you has said, we're giving this to streaming. Yeah, the first really big budget tentpole to be um, given to streaming, as you say. I think there's multiple things at play here, though. One, Disney see it as a big get for Disney+. Plus. Um, they could use all the subscription money they could get right now since they're not making any has, money from the box office. Actually, actually have Disney+. Plus. A lot of people do, apparently. I do. Um, okay. <laughs> all right. But yeah, uh, so one, it's a big get for that. Two, when the uh, cinemas finally reopen, there's going to be a big crowd of releases. The studios are going to be faced with the question of, do they really, you know, really space out all the things that have been delayed so that you've got like basically this whole of 2020 schedule just gets shifted by a year or two? Or do the big films start coming out close together because the little ones will all have been put to streaming? Um, and when it comes to this film, I think Disney, rather than making any more big calls with regard to it would maybe rather just cut their losses. Um, I'm speculating a bit, but this film has been delayed by over a year. Um, reportedly, they were doing reshoots. I think Disney are worried that it's a lousy film that's going to lose money whenever they do. So it might be better to just avoid the publicity of a box office yeah. bomb. And it's a weird because like the, the, the And it's a get, get for Disney Plus. The Artemis Fowl books were one of my favorites when I was growing up. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, whatever I've been hearing about the film as such has been pretty bad. Yeah, and, and also I hear it's quite different from the books in some ways. So the um, the fan base isn't going to be on board for it. So it's kind of like, what's the point? I mean, the books had a lot of problematic stuff in it. But anyway, that's that's a different thing altogether. Yeah, I think to, to Virat's point, I, I agree that their studios realize that they'll face a glut of releases and they don't want to cram too many in together. But I also think that there's very few streaming services coming out with new material at the moment. If the yeah. family says we can only really want one and Disney Plus are the ones dropping huge content there and there is a built-in fan base. My sister who loves those books is going to get Disney Plus to watch this movie and that's what they're banking on. They want for the next month people who renew their subscriptions. They wanted them to renew Disney Plus and this is a huge incentive. So I, I get why they're doing it. Well, what's interesting is because it's on Disney Plus, you might say, oh, sure, I could have a free month or pay $10 and mm -hmm. I get to watch Artemis Fowl. Whereas you might be like, oh, I heard they, they deviated from the book and you wouldn't pay $20 to see it. Yeah. 
Yeah. But it, it, it's not just Disney. I mean, uh, Mubi is having a streaming premiere of Pablo Lorraine's Emma, the director of Jackie, in, on 2nd May on Mubi World. So that's pretty big for them as well from an art house kind of criterion competitor kind of Yeah, it's, it's basically that the theatrical release for that film has been completely skipped. That would have been a major festival title this year. Yeah, yeah definitely. On, actually, get on Tubi. Tubi have a lot of its like trashy, just fun movies that you can talk with your friends over. But um, really? I've been doing a few uh, Tubi watches and those have been pretty good. So if you just want something to relax to you on a Thursday night or a Friday night, that's... There's a service called Tubi? Tubi or not Tubi. <laughs> To be or movie. Not to be. I say, yeah. <laughs> uh, great last action hero reference. I, 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 I say, I say, to, I say to be, but um, there are there are many services out there uh, to, to take, and there's actually other streaming options. One thing you can stream. We've talked about Static Vision and Hyperlinks, what they've been doing in the collective in the past few weeks. They had a streaming event at midday on Saturday, and they're doing a lot now. There's another one on Friday night at 6 p.m. when we get Q&A. Chris, Palace. Yeah, Chris and I tune into the last one. They're pretty fun. They're interactive. So hop on that. Um, um, and screening of his of that film and his new film at a Q&A as well. Friday Hyperlinks by Static Vision. Um, speaking of Q&As, uh, in the past week, there have been the film nights from Australian filmmakers and Q&As by Filmonic in Melbourne and the equivalent Kino in Sydney, Kino Sydney. last night. Yeah, um, actually a really good streaming night. Some really good films actually screened. Um, it's I, Hopefully they'll have a, a good supply of new films made in quarantine um, since no one can get it really uh, observe the social distancing regulations and go out there and meet up with friends. But, uh, you know, we'll see how people's creativity flourishes in this time and the, the following one. So if you've got a film, uh, to, to screen or you you are getting inspired and in making something with all your free at home time um, submitted to Kino Sydney they're, they're doing a really good thing uh, great night last night I'm sure the next one will be good as well yeah pull up a Shafar Panahi like the rest and there are a few pretty good films um, right. I, I, I don't like, this is not a film um, the next Filmonic is on the 28th of April, which is open for submit, and you can do a Q&A, and you can do as a director a Q&A with the organisers. The Kino Sydney one is on the 4th of May, so any Star Wars themed films will be very acceptable, as will any confinement and quarantine themed movies, we should say. Uh, social distance, no, self, social no, distance. We say no Star Wars and yes to everything else. Speaking of what is available online and what you can stream, the Queer Screen Mardi Gras Film Festival today announced that they will be and have already released the details for a lot of features and shorts that you can stream online. Just go to the Queer Screen website and you can see material that has aired in previous years and where you can access it. The National Film and Sound Archive are releasing new stuff every couple of weeks. The Japanese Film Festival have the JFF online where you can stream titles from 2019. The Jewish International Film Festival are doing the same on their website. Monster Fest are releasing new content every week. The Irish Film Festival are highlighting on their Facebook page every week how you can stream IFF movies. And the Revelation Film Festival in Perth have the existing Rev on Demand service where you can see all the titles that have screened in previous years and they've add, they're adding dozens of titles all the time. So. You can seek all those out. But for now, we are talking something else you can stream, Howard Hawks movies. We've been talking for actually years about how we never talk about pre-50s movies. And I'm really keen because I love this era. I grew up watching Fox we, classics. We really, to be honest, we've, I don't think we've ever uh, reviewed a film made before the 70s on this show. No. Uh, we Wait, haven't discussed really? one. No. Yeah, never. 
Yeah. So this is this is big. We're going back. Well to overdue. Well overdue. We've talked about movies in passing, but we're going back to 1932 to start. We're covering 32 through 56. Uh, Nine. 59. Yeah. We're 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 making up for lost time. But if you have a director or filmmaker or actor, we're going to talk a bit about Cary Grant, Marilyn Monroe in this episode. Happy to cover them. But here's how you suggest them. Twitter.com slash Film Fight Club AU or fate on Facebook, facebook.com slash Film Fight Club or look us up at Film Fight Club on Twitter or Facebook. We haven't done much with the social media sites yet, but as promised, we launched up. them. We're going yes. to start putting content on them more regularly, uh, which is to say at all. But for now, if you'd like to reach out, um, join the club. Join the club. Yeah, yeah it's a real club now. It's, it exists. So. Yeah. Give us some obscure movie or obscure topic or actor or actress to fight about because I'm, I'm so keen to talk about Kate Hepburn. I love Kate Hepburn and we've never talked about her. My God. Kate, Kate Hepburn's not an obscure actor, though. No, I know she's not an obscure actor. I'm saying just... <laughs> it doesn't have to be obscure. Just something we haven't talked about on the show before. Something different. Because I my movie education started when we got Foxtel when I was eight. And I just sat in front of Fox Classics and sat in front of the Classics movie channels and just watched them back to back and back. So a lot of... Be honest. Breakfast at Tiffany was your favorite is, movie. That was era it? is that those early movies. And I love them. I love them. That's still my, where my love of film comes from. So the first film we are covering from Howard Hawks... Is Scarface. It is. Scarface is... The original. Yeah, not the Al Pacino version. There was another one from 1932... It is about Tony Camonte, who is definitely not Al Capone and is an upcoming gangster. And this, <laughs> if, if you watch this movie, you'll see the trends and stylings that have, that are still to a very large extent influenced gangster crime. Yeah, it's, it's surprising how contemporary it is to gangster movies now. This could be a low budget crime movie right now. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, I, it's a pre-code movie. So it's um, one of the things Glenn commented on via chat after watching was how violent it is. It's so much oh, more yeah. violent than the films that would be made like 10 years later in Hollywood. Yeah, the Hayes Code. Mm, yeah. 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 So yeah. Pre, the pre that kind of censorship. Um, although it does begin with a little title card where it's like, this isn't exploiting violence. Where This is actually an educational movie to, to <laughs> get our government to do something about crime. Yeah, sure. With a lot of a lot of excessive violence to hammer the point home, like a lot of excessive frequent violence. This yeah. is one of the things that annoyed me about this. A thing I despise about particularly 30s films is that the idea of a message movie, and explicitly so, was considered acceptable and normal. This is something Sunset Boulevard basically put to bed very well with a conversation between the William Holden with the William Holden character. And it's films where either through title cards or a character doing exposition, they explain the moral of the story. This one does it at the beginning and end and but, in an otherwise pretty good film. I hate that. It really yeah, not. it is a little bit spelt out, but it, for the most part, it's not really a message movie. It, it's it, only in the broad, acceptable way. It's a rise and fall hubris story. Yeah, also, but this was way less violent than you know, the actual Scarface that we know. The, the remake, know. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of the yeah. remake, it's it's interesting to see how prominent the world is yours sign is in this one. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
It, also, this was more happy-go-lucky than I thought it would be. Maybe it's just how it all signature uh, His style is fairly light, but I thought this is, considering this is still a pretty heavy movie. Yeah. Um, but it's getting into some of the things we're going to talk about again and again as we go through his filmography today. Um, it's so fast-paced and has, you know, um, not yeah. to the level that of mastery that you see in some of his later films. But the screenplay but is really very, like, there's no, like, you know, yeah. extra such. He, he, he always, he was a, a quite, and you can tell that watching a bunch of his films. Like, the, the, there's always a, a streamlined nature to them, and there's always a, a focus on um, the details of character. And like I was saying, it's not as, strong in this film as it is in some of his later ones but still um yeah but still the quirks of individual characters come out and um th there are some moments like towards the end i felt like the cheska and uh his sister and um what's scarface's actual name like is it tony johnny tony tony, tony, Montana. tony. yeah tony Montana. but yeah tony um Tony and Cheska's relationship is, is kind of interesting at first, and then suddenly at the end, I was like, what? With the way that the final development comes about, it seemed way too abrupt. Yeah. I think there could have been let more a focus on character development and less of a focus on some of the violence sequences. And I'll elaborate on I, this. I didn't, I liked the violent sequences, the car chase, um, the end really of the car good. chase. Really good. The car chase is amazing. Standards. For, yeah, the, for the like 1932. The, the thing the is that- in this film were great. With, with, with the violence, it's kind of like um, a lot of the late era Bond films, or the lesser ones, where instead of focusing on a narrative, we say, we, characters talk for a bit, and, oh, we need violence right now. We can't figure out how to end the scene and some violence in. And this in some ways, a lot. this movie, it doesn't have, really have much of a plot. The plot is there's war and gangs. This guy keeps rising, yeah. and in between, there's some, some cool scenes where cars, you know, Tommy guns firing outside cars and stuff like that. Drive-bys. Yeah. Um, I, I also should note, this, this film, separate to um, the quality of production, is actually very gutsy for its time. I made a quip earlier how the character isn't Al Capone, but the, it's pretty clear to anyone watching this that it is based on him. There mm -hmm. are very strong allusions to the Valentine's Day Massacre yeah. and much else. And remember, in 1932, Al Capone was still at, the, or at near a height of his power. And I mean, Howard Hawks, Howard Hughes, who was the producer, could get away with making you feel about him, but no one else could. So this was a very topical picture for its time. Fun fact, when I was a kid, I always used to get Howard Hawks and Howard Hughes mixed up. I think because of reading about this movie, being, and, and I also because Howard Hughes did direct films, didn't he? He directed like, at quite least a one few. Or two. Um, they weren't very good. Yeah. And they were over right. budget. And it's, it's funny, a good, uh, these, these two had, had to meet, had to, have some kind of connection because you know Howard Hawks was the amateur um, aircraft enthusiast and a great filmmaker, and Howard Hughes was the great aircraft enthusiast and lousy filmmaker. Yeah, I guess great aircraft enthusiast, amateur filmmaker, so like flip it around. Yeah. My, my point of reference to Howard Hughes is the amazing Simpsons episode with the Spruce Caboose and Monty Burns going absolutely wild with the casino. Um, yeah. uh, another thing about this. We have to remember this film came right off the end of the silent era. 
So actors are still very much, or accept, it's very yeah, much accepted cool. that actors are exaggerated and over the top. However, you'll note in this versus a lot of the other films of the time, performances are much more grounded and realistic, not overly so, and it is still hyper-exaggerated, but you can see a, move, a gradual move towards realism, and this is a very early example. And it's Dave, good. Dave, David Bodwell, the great film historian, and also other critics have noted that the um, visual grammar of film uh, took a decline after the introduction of sound. There was a gradual decline, and I think you can see that looking at this film. Um, there's some silent film era stuff going on, some very German expressionism influenced style with huge shadows um, and some really interesting tracking shots. Um, it, the, the Valentine's Day massacre scene, you, you know, has this like all shadows on the wall and then panning up to all these X's and the yeah. like, I, you know, in a montage like, with people it, being gunned it, down it and making an X on yeah. the ground with the, the shadow across their body. It, it allows you to connect connect the pieces through just visual montages rather than actually yeah. like, um, tell you stuff. He was a very mainstream, dominant, like efficiently and tell stories well in the predominant stylistic modes of the, of the films. And um, for the most part, the visual language, though it's still um, really well executed, it gets way more simple and I would argue more boring than what you see in Scarface. I, I agree. I mean, there is that montage theory of like Eisenstein, right? Where A plus B equals C. So you, you just show people A and then you B and they work out what C is based on the information mm. you're given in A and B. And that's essentially like what happens in this film a lot. You know, you are able to deduce what just happened, which mm. is why I think the violence sometimes was unnecessary because you already had deduced what had happened and the violent scene was not necessary to actually it's sensationalism. It's, visual, it's yeah. That, this, the visual grammar already communicated that. Well, this kind of movie is the reason why the Hays Code was introduced. The idea was like this is just sensationalized violence, and is this going to cause some kind of moral degradation? That they know that people come to a gangster movie because they want to see people get mowed down with Tommy guns. So let's put as many scenes of that as we can. And we should note uh, well, the extent to which this film has remained influential in its stylings of shootings, and moreover in fashion. There's that great scene where he walks in and there's all the people in top hats and hats and coats and that's mm. th that motif is still very very numerous um i didn't have that is the gangster style right like yeah. beyond even outside of film though I, i'm not i don't know the history well enough to know how, how much of it how yeah i, I, I don't know any contemporary gangsters anymore but mm -hmm. like, oh, I'm not saying contemporary gangsters are sort of like that. Um, that would be awesome. That, contemporary gangsters, so that you know who they are because they're in a, like a fedora and this like trench coat. Yeah, it's like it's like the CIA dress code, like you know, yeah. the, you know, with the dark shades and like you know, yeah. the black suits and everything. Oh, else. That guy's a gangster. <laughs> yeah, but the sparrow has landed. The sparrow has landed. Eagles flying. Anyways. One one reason for the violence, and I don't think this is a forgiving aspect of the film, because it does detract from. The narrative and its flow but every scene in this is meant to represent a real life instance of what happened in the context of the violence in chicago so mm -hmm. we go oh that's that oh that's that oh it's so numerous oh it's so plentiful we have to do something about this i get it but it purely is a film and watching it in this modern era it does take away from it having said that um some of the sequences that were violent uh, particularly the sequence where the guy is on the phone holed up in the corner while bullets rattle through the i think it's a restaurant it's so good it's still good yeah yeah it's great it, like we were saying the staging is really good he's a great director um i mean yeah for for a 1930s film the way it holds up in terms of 
the basics of filmmaking and storytelling. That itself is, you know, exceptional. I, I was not expecting that command uh, in, in that level of thing yeah. that early. So that is Scarface. It is streaming um, Scarface from 1932. The next thing we're talking about, we're jumping forward six years to bringing up Baby. Bringing Screw up Baby. comedy. One of the great first ones. I mean, the first great one was It Happened One Night, and it's still one of the standouts. But this, I think, was the next major one. Hmm. It is starring, and one of the really first prominent films, not the first prominent film, with both Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn and a leopard called Baby. It made 98 on the AFI's 100 Greatest American Films of All Time list. And yes, it is a scribble comedy with those two performers about a leopard. I was very fond of this growing up. I adore scribble comedy. It's one of my very, very favorite genres. I do think that Hepburn and Grant became a lot more confident later in their career and were able to work better with much better writing. Um, the Philadelphia story, uh, Arsenic Old Lace to just talk about Grant, um, are much better examples of the genre. But I really enjoyed this. And you can see uh, Hawke's ability of how, how well he got to work with animals because later he went on to make Monkey Business, a film I actually prefer, which we can talk about a little later in the program. Um, I was actually amazed at some of the uh, some of the animal training stuff going on in this film. I oh, yeah. This would definitely not be Peter approved. But yeah, seeing a, a leopard <laughs> and a, a dog play fighting, I thought, how the hell did they achieve that? Yeah, I mean, some of the things, because I'd, I'd forgotten, and these were not the scenes that I remember, actually, because I don't remember Kate Hepburn and Cary Grant, and I'd forgotten entirely that there were animals in this movie. I just remember, uh, my, my recollection of this movie was just, there's a leopard, and because I, I saw this um, when I was a really little kid and just paid attention whenever the leopard came back on screen. <laughs> <laughs> there's some people talking... Um, and they, they keep calling the leopard baby and like push it around and cram and stuff. And then the leopard does something cool again. Anyway. I like the scenes of the leopard. I liked, I liked, all the, I, I liked this movie a lot. Um, one thing that did annoy me is that Cary Grant, he's, he has a couple of modes when he's not doing suave when he's trying to be funny. Either he's much more sophisticated funny. I think charade is still the high point of this. Or yeah, he's so good in that. So great. But this... He, where I, I said I liked Austin Old Lace, I do, but I like it for the scripting. In that and this, his style of acting is to be to be to be the straight man, to react, have big wide eyes, and that's fun to watch. But it's not fun to watch when he does it in every nearly every single. Scene. You're right. He has the same approach to everything. I think I think yeah. um, Catherine Hepburn's better in this. But um, from a contemporary perspective, I found it sometimes difficult to get on board with her character. It's the same kind of problem I have with the old lady in Harold and Maud, where sometimes like. She's just so annoying and the things she does are like are so bad that I can't turn off the part of my brain that takes things seriously or I'm like, you can't just steal someone's car or, you know, whatever other awful thing she does. Like she's, the, the joke is like, haha, she's such a ditz, but she's so stupid. That sometimes it's just like, it's just grating for me. Yeah, it's actually, yeah, it's it just causing harm to other people. It's like the Yeah, exactly. When it's causing harm for other people, it's hard for me to just... Oh yeah, that's, that's just a funny joke. But when the movie's funny, it's really funny. Um, there's some incredible staging of the, some of the pratfalls. Just the, there's oh, one yeah. moment that yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, some some of the the um, way people are framed, like you know, doing weird running in and out of like the dinner party. There's a bit earlier where Cary Grant says, you know, that's the last time I'm going to see you. Good, you know, goodbye, and turns around and then just falls out of the frame. 
Yeah, and it is so the, the, funny. The, the physical the gags, like it, yeah. re, it reminded me a lot of Edgar Wright. Like you know, I was thinking like you know. Yeah, oh really clever use of the camera. Yeah, in and out things in and out of the frame, just falling in like unexpectedly, very Edgar Wright style, which I guess is like very Howard Hawks style. Should should reverse that. It's, yeah, it's, it's one of the best things about screwball comedies. Um, that physical slapstick humor. One of the other things is the amazing rapid fire dialogue. Today, you don't you see people screenize the scourges that sort of level of scripting i.e the, the rule is one page per minute back then it was more like two to three pages per minute, like an episode unless you're aaron sorkin films. yeah except for aaron sorkin who I, who I adore um improv now is has taken the place of that but i like that everything in this was scripted and so tight but there's scripted. definitely there should still be room for this mode of filmmaking it's out of fashion but there's still a place for it for sure Speaking of that mode of filmmaking, the next film we're going to cover on our extended episode on the podcast is His Girl Friday, which might be the most famous example ever of that kind of rapid fire dialogue. Yes, I do, have, I do take exception to some elements of His Girl Friday. We're going to talk about that on the podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes and Spotify and stay tuned for The Sonic Assassin and um, tune in next week. Reach out to us on, on social media. Yeah, Reach please out on social do. media. Chris, those handles? Yeah, uh, on twitter.com slash Film Fight Club AU and Facebook.com slash Film Fight Club. We're going to continue talking about His Girl Friday, The Big Sleep, General Prefer Blondes, and Rio Bravo on the podcast. Stay safe. Get Stan because Parasites will be on there on Saturday. Um, stay safe. Be well. Let us know what you find out about. Stay cool. Have a good night. Enjoy movies. Goodbye. A kiss on the hand may be quite continental, but diamonds are a girl's best friend. A kiss may be grand, but won't pay the rental on your humble flat. Or help you at the automat. Men grow cold as girls grow old, and we all lose our charms in the end. But square cut or pear shape, these rocks don't lose their shape. Diamonds are a girl's best friend. Welcome back to Film Fight Club. So we're going to be talking about Here's Go Friday in a moment, but just before we wrap, we want to finish up on bringing up Baby. One thing, again, I do like this, but one thing that annoys me about a lot of screwball comedies, this is a perfect example of it. Uh, most, most of all of them do this, but for the, be the better ones don't rely on this as a storytelling device. And a lot of the interactions in individual scenes would absolutely end and grind to a halt if one character just came out and said what they were thinking or said something or said an obvious point. Um, yeah. A key example of this is a scene early in the film when they rip each other's clothes and all Cary Grant has to say is, I ripped your dress. Oh dear, my dress is ripped. Exactly. Um, let's move away. Uh, it's all, it they, they do this thing where they're always going, so the truth doesn't come out to drag out the joke. But it's more than that because there's also moments in this film where it's like, why are they just lying about something in order to keep the joke going? So it, so it engineers a comedy construct of, we need to keep such and such from finding out the truth. But then when she, and sometimes it's disguised with a thing of like, oh, she would freak if she knew this. But sometimes it's like, no, you're in, already in a bad situation. Just come right out and say what's going on. Because later on when they find out, when the, that person inevitably finds out, it's not a big deal. No, it's, it's about the stoicness of maintaining your dignity. You can't, you can't just let that go by telling the truth. I have committed to the lie. 
Yeah. Um, two, two examples of how this can be better handled over films I referenced earlier. One is the Philadelphia story, where it's very much about characters actively trying to one-up and better each other. And with regards to charade, it's actually a mystery. People are trying to uncover things and also trying to have one over at each other. So it works charade, there. It doesn't charade work is kind of like a marriage of Hitchcock with screwball comedy. Masterful. It's, it's a great film. Um, so uh, another film that disguises the, uh, that aspect of the screwball comedy writing playbook is His Girl Friday. From 1940. Yes. Yeah, starring Cary Grant again and Rosalind Russell. Um, this f- made famous the style of fast-talking newspaper man from the 1940s, which still persists in a lot of how actors perform in certain environments today can be traced back to this. This film is also um, very widely seen because it's regarded as one of the best films or the best film available in public domain because of an error in the copyright registration. It's it's the perfect George Bernard Shaw protagonist movie, right? Where you know the the fast-talking newspaper man protagonist really knows everything about, it and he has to worldwidely educate other people about how to live and how to exist, essentially. Well, it's a lot more misogynist than a lot. I, I don't think the film is misogynist. <laughs> I think the characters in this are a lot more outwardly misogynist than anything in most of what Shaw wrote. It, well, what's interesting about... Okay, um, there's so many tangents I can go on from what you've been saying. What's interesting <laughs> yeah. about the misogyny is, in some ways, this film seems less misogynist than um, Bringing Up Baby because Rosalind yes. Russell is a very um, adept... And yeah, she's not a ditz. Yeah, she's not a ditz, and she's respected by a lot of the tough, hard-talking men in the newspaper business because she's yeah, so they would have hired her unless she was pretty. They make a note of that. That's true. But, but she's thing, but so I, good that I, I, I don't think it's misogynistic. I think it's actually a much better reflection of the times where they can at least outrightly say that and still acknowledge the fact that she's talented. I mean, I'm I have to get the sense that this was in that in that way this was actually somewhat progressive for the time um however in showing a professional woman at just yeah. being respected for her professionalism however in some ways it's more misogynistic than uh bringing up baby because uh Cary grant's outright manipulation of her throughout the film oh, yeah. and gaslighting and yeah in order to achieve the ends he wants which is getting, bringing, obtaining her, winning her back, um, is basically played as a laugh, like, oh, that, that lovable rogue, Cary Grant. Um, <laughs> and yeah, you could not get away with that yes. at all today. No, I, I think it's, it's a classic uh, fuckboy, playboy template. You know, I think, I think a lot of people would just really relate with that even today. Yeah. So that's fine. Another fa- factor, I don't think that ages the film well. Another element that really, I didn't actually like this very much when I first saw it. I liked all the other character on school comedies a lot more and I still don't like it very much to this day. And it's not simply that they talk too fast or too much interaction. It's just for me that the film is trying to be too clever in the level of dialogue. I remember there's an episode of the West Wing where Sam, he could have said something very simply using three words, but he says it in about 15 words and the character calls him out for him, makes a point of it. And that's this whole film for me. It's too fast. It's trying to be too clever. And I just wish it kind of toned down a bit. And I think it distracts from a lot of what make it could otherwise distract from a lot of what makes this film objectionable or unlikable. Um, what was being discussed a moment ago, but that yeah. together with um, what has 
in no respects aged very well means this it's not a especially great film for me um if if tom stoppard was like alive in the dramatist in the 1930s or 40s this is the film he would have written tom stoppard would have absolutely thrived as a hollywood scriptwriter in this period 100% very Um, fast talking very just like quippy dialogue yeah. Where the actual point is no address. They could just be around the bush for like 20 pages. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I do think this film disguises um, the, uh, the, the machinations we were talking about in screwball comedies where um, the people don't, don't know the truth and it is used to drag out a... a um, a premise to milk as many laughs out as possible. I think it works in this film much better than it does in Bringing Up Baby and in a lot of screwball yes. comedies because, because the concept is that there's a guy pulling strings and manipulating yeah, people. Yeah, exactly. So the it is like one in, person, it has yeah. deliberate, you know, uh, so misdirection he, happening. Yeah, so you can have Cary Grant manipulating the scene so the police or newspaper people um, actually believe something and then clash with for example, Rosalind Russell, and uh, there's a big misunderstanding happening, but there's a reason for it beyond people just being dumb. Um, yeah. So you see similar kind of gag setups, but more. Uh, but there's something to hang your suspension of disbelief on. Um, but you know, I, I had a thought before that um, it's too blasphemous for me to not say it, based <laughs> on what you were saying, uh, Glenn, which is that I actually don't like there's some big exceptions there's some films of the era i absolutely love but in general i don't like classic hollywood that much i start liking american films from the late 50s and definitely into the 60s a lot more when it comes to stuff from like the 30s and 40s i prefer stuff from europe and japan because so much of the time it seems like the scripts are focused on trying to be clever like yes. uh, for me, the, la- the for language me, and find, dialogue is used as a crutch. Yeah. Yeah, I, I find it hard to get into a script when half the time um, the writers trying to writing was prized so highly that yeah. in a lot of films, like a lot of film noir, um, scribble comedies for sure. Yeah. It's just constant. It it kind of does feel like these were could have been great like plays, stage plays that have been yeah. essentially written for the screen. Uh, and, you know, the repartee takes precedence over the visual medium in the sense of what you can do and what you can show. And mm-hmm. then it needs exposition to supplement that, but sometimes it doesn't, really. Yeah. But sometimes a lot of the scenes are put in there just so the character, the actors can show off how, how much they can say and how much dialogue and how impressive how, they can sound. How witty they can be while they do it. Yeah, all right. I think we have to make a distinction in that era of filmmaking versus the modern era of American filmmaking and more broadly modern European filmmaking and that at that time there was an emphasis on the screenwriters and the actors. They were the highest regarded, the highest paid. When you only had such a limited camera set up and editing was so constricted, um, later obviously with technology advents, directors, editors, cinematographers, they became more prized, more valued. Back at the time it was very much screen the world for screenwriters and a world for performers i don't i do think that a lot we're going to talk about the big sleep in a few minutes and i think films that attempt to 
have one over you or wow you or overwhelm you were prized for the time. However, I still think they're the exception to the rule. There were so many more films being produced in this era that I think the emphasis was more on entertainment in the purest sense. We want people, people going to rock to the cinemas in droves. We want people to do a double feature. We want something yeah. light and digestible. So these films were the meatier again, exceptions to what was a broader, we just want to get bums on seats, which didn't depend on the type of obscure, um, overwhelmingly, I say in quotation marks, smart storytelling, which you're referring to. I just wanted, I need to say before we move on, when we were saying that, um, you know, directors being less prized. Uh, yes, but in some ways, but um, two things to that. One is that in you know, nonetheless, the screenwriters were really well, really underpaid for how much they were carrying True. things in, in Hollywood at that period. And often directors were thought to get more recognition and still credit. Often never properly credited. Yeah, that's right. Um, another thing is that, you, that we, we need to point out that, strictly speaking, that that's just the American model. In Europe, the director was really strongly prized and the visual construction was really strongly prized from the beginning. That's why a lot of the great... Um, why they imported a lot of directors to Hollywood like Fritz Lang, Jean Renoir, um, Hitchcock. Hitchcock, yeah. Um, these people had proved themselves and, you know, were brought in, in, a, in a period where they were given more room to play and were given more authorship of the film and were then, uh, you know, dragged into where the bigger money to play with was. And, but yeah, for the most part, their, their filmmaking became more restrained when they came back into Hollywood and, you know, they were kept on a tighter leash. Hitchcock broke out of that and, you know, was able to really put his visual signature on, on his films, but especially so as we get into the 50s, which is the period where it starts to relax as we get closer towards the sort of modernist breakthrough in filmmaking. Do we dare say auteur filmmaking? Well, yeah. Yes. It's, yeah. It, John, you know, um, it, it really is Hitchcock and John Ford and especially the stuff they were making in the 50s that led to the whole auteur Theory. Yeah. I think you're right. I'm, I'm glad you brought up John Ford because I don't think uh, John Ford gets as much credit in the pantheon of filmmakers and how he was a pioneer at the time as well, much as Hitchcock does. Um, yeah, not, he, today he's not so much a household name, but back then I think yeah. John Ford was so overwhelmingly respected. Yeah, I think if you want to look at the time when directors more of a really took charge and Develops and were more renowned to developing in America a distinct cinematographic template. Look at Hitchcock with 39 Steps and Rebecca. Look at George Stevens, um, A Place in the Sun, late 40s, early 50s stuff he did. This is when it really started. And in fairness, a lot of this was due to the, uh, the tech they had available to them at that time. But I still like Move away from filmmaking. Studio filmmaking. And I, the reason I like this era of filmmaking is before I really got into film and still to this day, I'm a theater guy. I still like reading plays and theater. And so much of the material was based by necessity and budget on, store, on screenplays, which only required so many actors in so many environments. And this is the grounding where a lot of these directors got training. Um, George Cukor, I was gonna talk about um, briefly Adam's Rib, one of my all time favorite films. If you like He's Got Friday, it's a sort of one I'd recommend. But these sorts of directors coming in and with filmmakers and with the audiences to a much greater extent than you do now, accepting that films are going to be like plays. And nowadays, it's a bit of a lost art because filmmakers, when they try to make plays, 
into film get it wrong a lot of time. We talked about cats to a great extent being an infamous example of this. But I like the transition we saw between, yeah, between theatre and film at the time. So, and it's something that we, we don't see so readily adapt, theatre so adapted to screen as we did back then. And I like that. I, I miss that. Mm. Um, on um, his girl Friday, can I? There's one one gag that stuck out to me. That the um, it's the guy. You know, what does he look like? Kind of like that guy in the movies, <laughs> Ralph Bellamy. And it's like, oh yeah, okay. Yeah. Soderbergh pulled out the same gag in a much worse version in Ocean's Twelve with like pretend to be um, Julia Roberts. I believe I'm forgetting this. Version. Julia Roberts. Pretend to be Julia yeah. Roberts. Yeah. All yeah. right, I'm going to draw a couple of exceptions here. In Ocean's 12, terrible movie. That only was an extent. No, it was all right. It Ocean's was 12 is a really was... cool movie in terms of the film form. Yeah, and experimentation exactly. Visually exactly. and yeah. with editing in terms of um, a, a mainstream concept. The script is bad, That's but it's not really about pretty stole it. All right, the, the reason that gag was bad was not just because it was dragged out over two extended sequences, was it what was a pivotal part of what was trying to put itself up as a clever heist film, and it reeks of lazy, cheap writing. The Ralph Bellamy line worked in the same way that a Marilyn Monroe film we're not going to talk about up later, How to Marry a Millionaire. There's a great line where Lauren Bacall, an actress we're about to talk about, is talking about all these old actors. He's like, this guy, this guy. What's his name from African Queen? She's obviously referring to her husband at the time, Humphrey Bogart. And that's a one-off funny line. It was one-off funny line then. It was one-off funny line with Ralph Bellamy. I liked it. It, You can't compare it to Steven Soderbergh's very cheap ploy in 2003. It's not the same thing. Um, But yeah, just just that kind of meta aspect, that that link to the audience. I thought that was very, very ahead of its time to see that kind of gag in a film from 1940. But also, it's it's not done in a way, and I think that's that's the real point of contention, right? When you bring up the Soderbergh line, it's done in such an obvious way, where it's such an obvious wink to the audience that, like, haha, I'm gonna pause. Ah, oh, Julia Roberts, ha! Like it's, the, it's the, an actual ha mm-hmm. moment, where this is such a throwaway line where he just says it and moves on. There is no actual like you know, there's no emphasis for a cheap laugh in this line, which is why it actually works because actually it is just a part of a casual conversation throw away. Okay. You want to know where this worked? Who did it best? There's an episode of community where they have to all go and personate at a bar mitzvah and the guy who's heading up the agency, they're like, wait a minute, you look like someone. He's like, yeah, I'm a French Stewart impersonator. And the guy who was playing was obviously French Stewart, but they didn't stop to wink at the audience too much. That's the level work. That's the right tone. It's better if you just put through without making a big thing of it. Yeah. 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 Um, anything more to say about His Girl Friday? Not for me. Amazing. Yeah. Look, the pacing is incredibly fast. I mean, that's something, I, I, I think it's, it's, wow. it's, it's a trademark of all, most of his films. They're like... They, no fat. No, yeah, so it's literally trimmed, yeah. Everything is like... Uh, it, it's a screenwriting class, actually, where like everything, every action beat is gearing towards something. Mm. Um, I'd like to acknowledge, I should acknowledge his Girl Friday's enduring influence after The Godfather. It is the most referenced film in Gilmore Girls because a lot of the dialogue is based on that style. So I, I appreciate that it has had. Bit of Gilmore that, Girls trivia? Yeah, Gilmore Girls trivia. Gilly right here. Okay. Remember the popular culture. 
Can I say um, of uh, his girl Friday, he said before he forgot what he was going to say. Right, no, um, aspects of it are really theatrical in the sense that, yeah. is it based on a play? I don't I think it don't is. No. No. We should check that. But aspects of it are really theatrical it, in the, the way that we were talking about before about how it's so streamlined in terms of action, but it's also streamlined in terms of location. Like just in this, the press room at the prison, so many things happen. So many characters enter and exit. Um, so many plot developments that could have been spread out over a large space all take place in this room. It is, um, but compared to something like Denzel Washington's hilarious adaptation of Fences, where he oh, has all my the, God. Um, theatrical devices where they made no, no sense on film, Everyone here it's streamlined and fast-paced enough that it still works as cinema. And this could be... Um, less a theatrical device. It is a theatrical device, but it could just be a budget-saving mechanism. Yeah. You know, let's get this thing as tight as possible in terms of locations and setups. You know, keep that plot moving. Yeah. And to note, um, um, it is basically one, one, one last thing on on his girl Friday. So there you go. Yeah, it's based on a play Probably by Ben Hecht, the front page. So yeah. Right. Also, I thought I read that, that in the credits. Right. Right. Um, yeah, that's not surprising. Um, but at least here, those theatrical devices have been disguised. In yeah. in uh, some uh, play adaptations, it, they don't do that. Um, one, and also I think Hawke's style is just fast paced enough that you don't think about, the, hang on, this is a bit stagey. Um, but something funny about this, we were talking about how Scarface opens with the, hey guys, this isn't just a gangster violence exploitation movie. This is, this is a serious art piece about the state of our times and the government must do something. Um, this one begins with the thing about like, this is definitely not talking about the newspaper world today. This is talking about the dark ages when people would do anything for a story. It's like, did, was someone involved working in the newspaper business, like some high level executive or someone who thought that he would, um, you know, be getting hot water for no, tarnishing like, the great name of newspaper men. I don't it, know, like, it, it why time, is that was, message there? Critics, they're the they, they they like, not the critics, the, Chris. No, no. <laughs> it, it was the time when the newspaper and media was like the fourth estate and everyone took it like really seriously because they were literally uh, the, the, the opinion makers that probably... So it probably was like, it, it does really seem like covering our asses line because it's not a movie that in any way like it definitely is talking about the present day. Oh yeah. <laughs> I think it, it was just like, how can no, we, in case there's some sensitive, will we run are, are very, are very extremely ethical and they would not do something like this. This is not a time about today. Yeah. It's often time past. Don't worry about it. It's not happening today at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so the stories you read today Friday? are completely true. Yeah. He's got Friday. And next up, we have from 1946, The Big Sleep. This is starring the classic couple, Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. To note, their first film, as well as Lauren Bacall's first film when she was 19, was to have and have not, a Hemingway adaptation, which is actually not a great film. There are very few... Howard Hawks film. Oh, so Howard Hawks film, yeah. Not a, they changed the story and... As we discussed last week, there are only two Hemingway adaptations I really rate at all. This one is a adaptation of Raymond Chandler novel. It is starring Bogart as Philip Marlowe. I think modern audiences will know this, may know this very well in two respects. Number one, it is, I think, still an ATAR text. I studied it during my final year of high school. And 
also any fans of the Big Lebowski will recognize the storyline very, very yeah. well. This yeah. also came off um, the Maltese Falcon, one of the formative films of, for a lot of people. And this, along with Casablanca, was that, oh, you saw the Maltese Falcon. You liked this movie. Well, here's another film noir with all the same people. You see, you should come see this. And that was what all the promotional material was like and what this film was very much geared towards. Did we like it? Oh, it's a, and it's, sorry, we should say what it is. It's a crime fiction detective. Um, of course it is. It's Raymond Chandler. And it's got a very extremely complex, yeah. plot, um, notably I, complex one. I cannot follow the plot of this. No, I, I've always hated Raymond Chandler. I think he's a terrible novelist. Uh, mostly because I don't think he knows how to plot his stuff. <laughs> and I, I, sometimes I don't think he, even he knows what he's okay, talking about. Interesting question of that. Do we prefer the book or the film? I prefer the book. Prefer I prefer the, the book, book because to... I can go back and clarify stuff. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the book I needed to stop and be like, wait, hang on. Oh, I get it. It's a um, little exactly. too labyrinthine. I mean, uh, Knives Out is a labyrinthine film, but it's streamlined and you can follow it. It's and it's not that people are stupid. It's that they are throwing too many side characters at you, which in the context of a film, at least this film, you don't get enough grounding with. It's not the same with um, Chandler's novels for the most part. And it's very unclear what was happening. Um, it's a famous anecdote about the movie, but there's a, a bit where a car goes off a pier and this question of were they killed? Was it a suicide? Was it an accident? Hawks went to chat, reportedly went to Chandler and asked him and Chandler's like, I don't know. And that's pretty much emblematic of how convoluted this entire plot is. Yeah. Um, the thing is though, I think the difference between the book, well, actually come to think about it, it's not so much a difference. It's just a difference of the mediums. Um, I was going to say the, the film is much um, more focused on the style, in this case being the fast-talking style that Hawks had been perfecting over his scruple comedy movies, which is here employed um, to just get us quickly through this narrative as fast as possible so that we can just focus on the Exposition charm. Drops. Exposition drops. Yeah, so that we can focus on the charm of uh, Marlowe and Bogart. It's, it's mostly about individual, you know, he goes from, in some ways it, it's like a predecessor. Of, you can totally see what, why the, the Stoner detective movie grew out of this, the things like Inherent Vice and Big Lebowski, where, you know, because the, it's not about the plot anymore. It's just about the vibe and the, like this yeah. general confusion um, as a guy goes from place to place and ends up in amusing scenarios. It's, a, it's about character quirks playing out. The book is also really about the style. It's about the really hard-boiled narration um, and the use of language more than it is actually about the plot. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. Still, I, it's, it's one of those films that actually was most difficult in a rewatch because I was just like, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to follow and how I'm supposed to. Like, the yeah. internal logic of the film was difficult to actually catch hold of because, like, and it, and it doesn't do you any favors by throwing so many side characters. So like, you know, it just, the tangents are so many. I thought, I do think that, that what I was talking about before, like the charm and the characterization comes across and is good. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, it is still said, an enjoyable film for something that like I can't follow. Yeah, for all we've said, I mean, it pretty much goes to standing because we're talking about Bogart and McCall. The actors are great and they're good in everything. They, they're great in this. They have amazing chemistry. They went on to marry. Um, to note, however, 
and it happens, I only noticed this on rewatch when I was informed of this. If you note, if you see that Bogart is, seems awkward in a lot of scenes, it's because he was actually, he's a bit shorter than Bacall and a lot of the other actors, but the leading man can't be, you know, shorter than the other people on screen. So he's often standing on things on like little bit stilts or boxes. And so he's not as, doesn't seem <laughs> as grounded all the time. Um, and that if, you, if, you, if you're looking for it, it's kind of like, oh, all right, so they did that then. Huh, I'm, I'm sure they still do it. They're just more adept at hiding it now. Yeah. Of, of, I, I, of all the stilts and boxes in the world, you stood on mine. Okay. That, that, that was good. That was Ingrid Bergman, but that was good. It's not fair to compare the film to the <clears throat> It's not fair to, to when you're talking about an adaptation compared yeah. to the book. But um, I, films have to stand on their own. And this does stand as a different thing. But I definitely prefer the harder edge of the book. This, this yes. is taking place in this really film noir environment, but it's quite sugary in some ways, despite people getting yeah, off the, every now and again. The Howard like, Hawks touch, yeah. Yeah, it's got that light touch. The ending is, and the way the ending comes around is right out of screwball comedy. Like, like yeah. there isn't that much development of character motivation and it is at odds with the darkness of yeah. this universe. Yeah, and, and the book is not like that. The book actually, no. like, you know, it, it's very much Spy Who Came in the Cold kind of feels. Yeah, the book is grim. Oh, this, this has nothing on most of Lacare. I'd love to talk about his adaptations. I mean, Chandler was great, but Lacare had the grounding in the but, Cold War mystique and general mystery, whereas the, the getting to the bottom of the barrel here is just, oh, there's some really lousy person who did some really lousy things. So it doesn't yeah. have as much of the appeal or interest or intrigue behind it as a lot of He's uh, the Carre's later novels. Well, you know, we spoke about a film that does have that kind of intrigue last week, Chinatown. Yes. Oh, yes. Where they, it brings in that kind of really dark, really perspective of like this corruption uh, everywhere. Uh, a close, a close companion piece to the Big Sleep would be The Third Man with uh, Orson Welles. Like, yeah. And yeah. and the Harry Lyme character was like a, the shadowy figure operating from you know. Who is and, Harry Lyme? No, it's a, a yeah, film, yeah. a wonderful film, which we've never discussed from just three years later. Ah, oh, <laughs> oh, that the Ferris wheel scene, many scenes consistent in that film still hold up, and a film that is eerily relevant today for uh, tragic reasons. Mm. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, are we done with the big sleep? I think we can move on. We can move on. Yeah, we, we've had the big sleep. We've had the big sleep. So we're jumping to seven years, 50, 53. We're already in the 50s. Time to wake up. Gentlemen prefer blondes. Um, before we but do they actually? I know. I've that's never the question. Met anyone not, who, not who really. has. No. Yeah. Um, not especially. I, I know Chris has a very decided view on this. Um, <laughs> um, I yeah. No, personally, no. Um, we are before we get into gentlemen prefer blondes. We should note that Monkey Business came out the year before. Also Howard Hawks. Also Marilyn Monroe. Also Animals. It's one of Monroe's. I think it's, it was a first really good stand-up comic performance. And actually, 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 to be more clear, it was her first prominent comic performance. And it was when people got to see, oh, this person's really, really good. She's not just, you know, uh, conventionally attractive. She can actually act and do comedic bits and has incredible timing. And then Hawks went, oh, wait a minute. We should give her a more prominent role. And while Jane Russell, who was the biggest star at the time, is still leading this, you can see Monroe coming up through the ranks in this film more than I think any other to date. Yeah, this yeah. this uh, this film is great. 
Well, it is. Okay. I, I, I like this. I like this better than Hit Girl Friday. Absolutely. I did too. Um, it, it is really like, I, I said my first reaction is like, oh, it's great. But then, you know, it's pretty dumb, but like, it's designed to <laughs> be that way. Like, it's a dumb it's, it's, entertainment. Yeah, exactly. This film is not trying to be cleverer than it is, hmm. right? But whereas His Girl Friday suffered from that. His Girl Friday is trying to be more clever than it needs to be, or even it yeah, is. Yeah, this film is just embracing that it's, it's quite similar yeah, to How to Marry a Millionaire, actually, yeah, in that respect. It's, it's, in that it's, it's sincere in its dumbness. Which it's is trying funny. to be light, flashy, technicolor musical. And speaking of technicolor, the colors of this film are just gorgeous. Yeah, the, the all throughout, even outside of the standout set pieces, just the yeah. look of it is uh, so yeah, otherworldly, but has this this like popping sheen. Yeah, I would just rewatch it just for the visuals. I would I would just mute the dial and just like run through the visuals of the film. Um, the enduring, the, the enduring element of this film, which uh, listeners will recognize, is the famous Diamond. song "Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend," and it's the famous pink backdrop. It's gorgeous. The whole sequence. It's more like a bright red, isn't isn't it? And Actually, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Um, look, all the musical sequences are great. The early one with um, like give love a chance thing with um. Oh yes. Anyone yeah, here yeah. for love? With with all the the white. Anyone here for love? The gym with, with, with all the gorgeous muscly men. The, the muscle men doing to, it. I have to note about the sequence. Um, yeah. That what? Okay. To this point, a lot of it was. Hollywood, and still to this day, is a very male-dominated industry. So the people who are overly sexualized in film were young women. And suddenly, yes, you have two very conventionally attractive women at the who front. are sexualized throughout. Who are, the film. who are very sexualized, yes. But there's this and, and equal opportunity moment sequence, for the women. But it's this one sequence yeah. where it's just all these gorgeous men with yeah. abs in ridiculous clothes, just jumping, yeah. and leaping, and gyrating, and okay, yeah, equal opportunity at least for a bit. Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's a really fun sequence. It's really well staged. All the musical scenes through the film are really well staged. But beyond Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend being such an enduring uh, landmark of this musical and this film, the song, the sequence is incredible, right? The, the colours, um, the, uh, the way that it goes so theatrical for that, that scene, the choreography of the dancers and the choreography of the camera, and of course the charm that Marilyn Monroe brings to it. Beautiful, yes. right? She's just I mean, so I'm, she's so playful. Um, and she's she as as the the kid who says when she gets stuck in the pothole, she has animal magnetism. Um, yeah, she really just I've always, I've always she owns like, the camera. I've always found that people have underestimated her comedic props so much. She's really funny, and, 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 and I think she should have got more recognition as an actress. And not and yeah, I'm not saying that she was not conventionally attractive, but I feel like that's somehow in public consciousness uh, sort of had a more negative impact in people considering her to be a much more competent actress than she actually was. So, right. so I wish more people would her act, acting chops. On, on the matter of Marilyn Monroe, um, I adore her. I've seen every one of her films. I love in this how this is the beginning of the trend you'd see with How to Marry a Millionaire the seven-year itch, and most probably some like it hot, where she's so playfully, overtly, deliberately in her vo- in her vocal movements, in her actions, just overtly sexualized, and in the sense that she knows it's self, it's parody to an extent, but she's also just glamorous and having the absolute time of her life. She's very conscious of um, what she's doing. She's, all everything she does, it may seem flippant, but it's very, very deliberate. 
Um, she's a very Jane good Russell, actress too. Like you look at her early material, Jane, Niagara. She's great in this too, though. On the subject, sorry, just to, to say, Marilyn's amazing. We could honestly do an episode of Marilyn. Gladly. Jane Russell was great in this film, right? That was good. They played they play off each other really well. No, I, I think she's better than good. Uh, no, I think yeah, that's I the agree. thing. Maybe, maybe that's also the, the problem of like looking back where you kind of forget because Marilyn Monroe obviously uh, has become such a legend. Jane yeah. Russell is a legend too, but Marilyn Monroe is like one only, of the... Uh, she lived a very long, fruitful life. She only passed away, it was a few years ago now. Interesting, yeah. But Marilyn Monroe dying so young and then having such a, a traumatic life yeah, and then having that meteoric a, rise. It's the James Dean effect, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, with No, I, I, I do believe Marilyn Monroe... She she was I, I, she was as famous then as she is when she was alive and active as she is now. She was yeah. one of the major stars of. Oh, Hollywood. I agree. I mean, and it's, it's not about the fame. Yeah. A exception. She is a very good. I think she's a better comedic actress than she's a dramatic actress. But she's a good dramatic actress. You look at Niagara, a small turn in All About Eve. Um, her Let's Make Love for Best Performance. Um, something's got to give. Uh. The final one she did with Cary Grant, I'm sorry, it slipped my mind. But um, a lot of people refer to Bus Stop as the best performance. It's a lousy script, and I don't especially like the film, but she's very good in it. She, but she was more over the hits she got, what the recognition she got back then today is for her comedic work. And this was when it first came to the fore. Um, my favorite of hers, my favorite performance of hers, you know, from a comedic since seven years, it came a few years later. And oh, she's just so good. It, and they're fun. They're fun movies to watch. She makes every film she's in fun and lively. She's just so charismatic. You can't take your eyes off her when she's on the screen. I'm not saying because she's conventionally attractive. I'm saying because she is such a good screen presence and performer. I agree. She, she's, she's beautiful, in, not just physically, but in terms of like the energy and the positivity she radiates. Yeah. yeah. Um, so gentlemen prefer blondes? Um, seek it out. It's debatable. a fun play. It's yeah, no, it's a fun watch. Yeah, it's debatable, but not the film, but just generally the statement. Yeah. The film is pretty is pretty undeniable, I would say. Yeah, <laughs> I'd say honestly, if if you're yeah, start with that. Go through to Monroe's later works and Hawks later works too. But speaking of Hawks later works, the last Howard Hawks we are covering, fifty nine, is Rio Bravo. Yeah, uh, this movie is one hundred and forty minutes long, but it really doesn't feel that way. No, not at it all. It goes by so quickly. It's it's definitely yeah my favorite in the rewatch of all I've done. Yeah, uh, um, and I was surprised that I hadn't seen it. You know, and it's sad because I was yeah, like, um, you know, I I finally watched this to do this episode. I, it's been on my to watch list since 2012. Um, I, but uh, yeah, it's it's such a, a a great western that really plays to the strengths. Um, of Howard Hawks that we were talking about, which is like the efficiency. Again, this maybe the 40s how, or 30s Howard Hawks would have gotten this plot done in 90 minutes. He, he lets it breathe a bit. However, yes. the plot is still, um, for what it is, very fast-paced and very efficient in terms of the storytelling, the, the way that um, plot threads converge. Uh, you know, the characters are waiting for this thing, but then the villains intercede, so then that moves us to this other thing that might have happened later. Yeah. Really efficient. Um, I think the the slower pacing is very deliberate because this film, um, more than any of his films, is about getting to know the character that we've spoken about. is about getting to know the characters. And I've said for all of his films that he has 
quite a um, attuned sense of characterization and he likes to draw out the people's tics um, through the film. Yeah. But here he, he just, instead of, you know, repeating those tics and, and drawing the, the kind of like caricature style um, characterization we spoke about earlier, this, this is trying to give more depth. Um, it is. It's a lot of the same approaches being employed here, but... I mean, the, the yeah. biggest setting challenge for me was, in, in, or at least, you know, the appreciation which came for me, he's directing a Western, but he's still doing it in a Howard Hawk style. It there's feels still like... Still that, yeah. A lightness of touch. There's still, like, those comedic moments in there. It's, it's focused on... on fast, fast-talking repartee. So yeah. The kind of, like, trademark signature style is still there, but the setting is a Western and the mood is a Western. Yeah, Which that's I right. I never thought could actually marry together until this movie. And I'm yeah. like, actually, this is so cool. It's still kind of, it's still a comedy about people in, in rooms yeah. um, trading quips, right? But it um, brings in, as you say, that, that kind of Western mood with this more darkness um, at play in terms of people's weaknesses and, and also just the actual physical death. Um, which but it feels a lot like, more rounded and real yeah. here than it does in, in the big I, I, I'd, nev- I'd never seen a Western which was enjoyable. Like, I would say Western is serious drama, right? Whenever I think of a Western, I think, you know, it's, it's a John Wayne or, or, you know, the Seven Samurai kind of feel. Yeah, you know. <laughs> but, you know, so, but the thing that Howard Hawkins is purely enjoyable. Yeah, yeah and, and it's like, am I actually, like, laughing in a Western, which has not happened. Mm-hmm. For, like, this is not a, not a mood that I would actually, like, try to evoke. But, uh, but yeah. the action... Watch the, the Wild Bunch to feel in for that sort of uh, mix. <laughs> right. Sure. But the, um, the action is great. Again, yeah, action, like, yeah. To it's take us full circle from, from the... Scarface, yeah. the shootouts, yeah. um, they're really to the point and streamlined again, but, like, the, the last yeah, action scene is so cool. Yeah. For a 50s film? Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's so weird because, like, the staging, the set pieces, the choreography of, like, how the action sequence is done, the stunt work, everything Mm. is spot on. Yeah. It it holds up so well today. And really, the the efficiency we talk about in the writing is also um, there in the filmmaking. Like, there's a a moment where we're getting a tell about where an enemy is and then the quick edit to dispatching that enemy, which is so nicely done with camera and editing. Um, oh we should give God. it a sense of what the film's about. Uh, a just, sheriff... You just get people just watch it. <laughs> yeah, a good sheriff in a town that's been um, overwhelmed by the influence of a bad gang needs to... Classic Western plot. I mean, it's all the same. It yeah, like... it's very similar plot to High Noon. Um, I think intentionally yeah. so. But um, <laughs> yeah, a good sheriff needs to rely on his, his good friends to help him fight off the gang who are trying to make him release the bad criminal. Um, he needs to hold off long enough for the US Marshals to come in to give him assistance because this gang has so much of a hold over the town. Um, but all of the people who come to help him have different chips on their shoulder or, or different reasons that people underestimate them. Um, like his, his deputy dude who's, who's a dr- washed up drunk, um, played by Dean Martin, the, you know, the, but just, yeah. just that, that choice to get Dean Martin to play. Like, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like, he's, just, he's just channeling his inner Rat Pack uh, bravado. Yeah, it's, it's, it's strange. So Dean Martin, I'm not a Dean Martin fan. You like him in but this then, one. But, I honestly yeah, think you'd actually, like him yeah. in this one. 
Um, yeah, because he's not acting. I think he's acting. He's just playing himself. The the old guy with the with the comedy southern kind of yes. accent and the the yes. limp, like the old disabled guy. And then there's yes. the um, the you know the the okay being young and uh, you know really fast isn't exactly the the biggest chip on your. But it's like people you know miss people underestimate me. Um, yes. But anyway. Well, John Wayne is, Look, is just typically I, John as, Wayne. As, as soon as I was watching this, I was just thinking, you know the Adam Sandler movie, The Ridiculous Six? Yeah. You know, like the potential of that movie to be so much better. I was just like, what yeah. if I replace this scene from Rio Bravo in Ridiculous Six? It this to work. A lot of scenes will have the same effect, but be better. This is the greatest story back to early in the conversation because the way I hear about The Ridiculous Six is that Mark Twain is played by my man, Big Vanilla, Vanilla Ice. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. God, that, that movie. Oh uh, let's, 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 let's go back to talking. I haven't seen Rhea Bravo, God, but sight unseen. Let's go back to talking about a good Western. Yeah, no, Rhea Bravo is fantastic. Um, I, I, like, as I said at the beginning, I could not believe two hours and 20 minutes went by. It, it feels yeah, like and, uh, yeah, at we, most we, we, two we, hours. We, at most. We're underselling it so much because, like, I mean, it is so hard to marry those tonalities. I mean, it's not, it's not easy at all. And at no point does it seem jarring or out of place or like, you know, it's a, or, it's, or, or that you're not convinced that you're not watching a Western. At every point, you're like, you know, it fits. It's a classic Western, but it's such a nice movie. Yeah. Do you feel that? Like, it, like I because know. it's got that hangout vibe of with, with getting yeah. to know the characters and their friendship. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's, it's not gritty. It's not like serious. It's not self-serious yeah, at all. It's, it has a good spirit and, to it. It's a good and, chill and yet, like, people, movie. People die, like, you know, they're shootouts, like there's less actual consequences. Yeah, so it's not like it's not like it's taking itself too lightly. No, that's right. The treatment, the treatment is light. The film doesn't take itself lightly. Yeah, it's a different set. Yeah, um, I think this is one of the great westerns. Yeah, it is, uh, and I'm so sad. It's taken me so long to watch it. Like now, I'm gonna like just like go on the streets and be like, "Have you seen a oh, fun western?" Rio Bravo. You know, yeah, yeah, but like, yeah, go it's on the streets, western. watch like, Rio Bravo. <laughs> So, so it's like on Twitter, you know, the K-pop people where they're like, stream such and such. Oh my God. His name is like, yeah, the, watch Rio Bravo. I'm just, just the, Rio the, Bravo the, army. The, the, the K-pop <laughs> fandom is like probably only superseded by the queer fandom. So like, I don't know. It's just like Twitter is a different. Pop star, it's queer, the queer fans of pop stars. It's, oh it's intense. Oh, when, yeah. when the when the Matt, I can't wait for Asia Vision to happen so yeah. the K-pop stars, the J-pop stars can win alternately every year. Man, when, uh, when, uh, yeah. K-pop Parasite will win now. J-pop has become has become less mainstream. I think when when the when the Parasite cast met K-pop the, just exploded. Yeah, when the Parasite cast met the portrait cast, I think there was a part of Twitter which just exploded. Like it was just massive. And all you were seeing, like, oh my God, stand this, stand that. And I was just like, oh my God, all right, all right. Okay, speaking calm down, of, everyone. Again, speaking of Parasite and Stan, you should go get Stan so you can watch Parasite on Saturday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good plug. And also, Stan just has a lot of great films and a lot of gems. Uh, you know, I, I often voice things on, on the show, like I'm about to do now without running it by everyone else. But how about we come up with, I remember Glenn came up with a big list of stuff on SBS On Demand. Why don't we put our lists on social media of like recommendations of things people can watch on the streaming services? Yeah, I'll be up for that. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, so that gives you some reason to follow us at 
facebook.com slash film fight club au or facebook.com slash film fight club where we will start to release content so so there's a difference on twitter we have film fight club au whereas on facebook it's just film fight club you know that's right we're Um, everywhere I, I totally, and again, this is like, we haven't discussed this properly. You're hearing it, listener. I, I, I'd love to do like we did with SBS with Namad, an episode where here's the stuff that's on Stan. Here's the stuff that's on movie. We were talking about doing a Peter Weir yeah. episode. I'd love I, to do a Peter Weir. I think we'll have time with the way things are going to get through all of these ideas, as long as we yes. don't forget them. <laughs> I, th- I, think, I think the movie one is definitely uh, really worth watching because you know, it's every day a new movie. movie brings, movie's a great service um, compared to the other streaming companies. It's basically a small business. Um, yeah. And they bring, sorry? And Tubi. And Tubi, <laughs> different. Oh different. Um, yeah, movies, <laughs> movies great. Uh, a, a new film every day. Often some really obscure stuff you but can't actually, see like, anywhere Stan, else. Stan Beautiful becoming, quality. And it's becoming one of my favorites. Uh, and it's probably superseded Amazon and Netflix. I definitely prefer Stan when it, especially yeah. when it comes to movies. Platform. Movie selection is fantastic. On Netflix, it's always just a bit like something cool pops up that surprises you. But in general, it's just way too limited. Um, Stan have a lot of cool stuff. Go Stan. Yeah, go yeah. Stan. Stan. It's Stan. Sport, it's Sport Stan. Australia. It's an Australian Stan, company. Stan. That's Stan. true. That's true. It is. Um, yeah. Now, but yeah, that's uh, that's that wraps up our Howard Hawks episode. He was such yeah. a such a versatile filmmaker. There's a bunch yeah. of classics he uh, directed that we'd never covered. Only Angels Have Wings, Red River, Another Western, The Thing from Another World, right? Uh, re- remade yeah. by John Carpenter is the thing. Really? If you want to hear yeah, yeah. about the Angels okay. Yeah, he, he did an homage to it because in, in, in Halloween, um, the original Howard Hawks, The Thing from Another World, is what the, what the kids watching on TV and getting scared. Ah, yeah, okay, yeah. Sorry. I just had a light bulb moment, guys. Sorry. Right. Home Alone 2 did a, a, did a um, allusion to the former with Angels with Filthy Souls, was it? Oh, that was more of a, that was a Angels with Dirty Faces um, Homage. Yes, that's what I mean. It's the fault. Yes, the fault. Yeah. So, a- only angels have wings is confusingly similarly titled, but actually different. Not a gangster movie. <laughs> we are same. I'm getting my gangster films. I'm getting my gangster. It doesn't help help with getting gangster films confused when they're all of hats. Thanks, and the same trench coats. <laughs> thanks, the Scarface. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, we'll get them to wear different attire next time. No, yeah. Only Angels Have Wings is another Cary Grant one. I'm pretty sure it's Cary... I, I, I shamefully yeah. haven't seen it. I'm pretty sure it's Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn again. I'm going to double-check that. Um, yeah. Team, um, okay, here's, the, here's my, my Googling for you. A team of flyers risk their lives to deliver the mail in a mountainous South American company, country. Um, no, it's John, John Arthur and Cary Grant. Oh, okay. I should really watch this. And the first significant role for for Rita Hayworth. Wow. Honestly, we tweet so much about Cary Grant. I'd love to do a Hitchcock episode where we just talk about his Cary Grant films or some of the other strands of Hitchcock. I love Cary Grant's comedy work, but his action-orientated work, North by Northwest. He wasn't great in Catch Thief, but it was a good film. Uh, The other ones he did with Hitchcock, they were good. Like his action stuff later in his career is great. He's such a versatile actor. Yeah, I was thinking about, um, though, yeah, he, he does his uh, devious mastermind in His Girl Friday a lot better than he does his Bumbling Fool, but he still does the, in um, Bringing Out Baby, but he still does the Bumbling Fool well enough that 
it's it, watching those films back to back. It's but just that's a the great thing. example of Cary Grant's versatility. Go watch I mean, Philadelphia Story. We just know him as the suave, like George Clooney of this day, but he was a lot yeah. more versatile than that. I mean, what we George we, Clooney we also tries to emulate yeah, the goofiness, yeah. though. Yeah. In some of his I mean, roles, like oh, by the way, I now. What what we are probably not acknowledging is that he was also one of the actors who's has survived different styles of acting, right? And he had to reinvent himself to be relevant. Yeah. And at that point in time, I think with every decade, uh, the the movie styles were changing so much that he probably yeah, but he had stayed to, relevant. And he did. I mean, you know, from a bumbling fool to a crypt talking uh, screwball comedian to an action star, it's 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 a great career. To Mr. Suave. Yeah. To Mr. Hmm. Suave. Well, that that was probably the least uh, effective for me, but yeah, it's fine. He, he, he did swap pretty well. So. All right. Yeah, Cary Grant's great. Shaking, not stirred. Um, actually, on that, oh, the perfect segue. So Cary <laughs> oh Grant in 62, I don't think it, he was formally offered, but he was approached about the role of James Bond. Interesting. And I was about to say Cary Grant would have been a perfect Bond. No, I, I disagree. I disagree. He doesn't, at that point in Ooh. his career, he had okay. the suaveness, but he didn't have the physical impact and presence and capability that Connery and some of the later Bonds have. And also my thing with Bond is no actor who's ever taken on the role is more famous than the role. They're a steward. Like we talked about in the yeah. directors earlier. Harry Grant was Harry huge Grant would have been Harry Grant. It would have been it's, James Bond. It's the same when and everyone says get Idris Elba for Bond. It's like, no, he, Idris Elba is way too famous. Oh, so Cary Grant only wanted to do two and they were like, we wanted someone for five. You could lock in five movie deals at that time and Sean Connery was like... Uh, yeah, they do that now. Marvel movies, it's like you sign on... But yeah, but wasn't, Daniel Craig, wasn't Daniel Craig big enough before, when he took on Bond? No, no. Oh. Everyone had seen... And people had seen Layer Cake. They sort of knew him from Munich, Tomb Raider, um, Elizabeth. But it's not... Wasn't, he's it, like it, that guy. People wouldn't... He was a character actor. Yeah, like a, a bit of size player, not a character actor, but he was a supporting guy. I mean, he no, done not at all. Invasion, which wasn't very. If you big. weren't a, I think if you weren't a um, devotee of the cinema, you probably wouldn't know who Daniel Craig is. You of course, like, oh, you. I no, I don't yeah. think so. No, no, he was, I, no, he wasn't. He, he didn't have a big role big. in any major film. No, he, he was. He was Rachel Weisz's partner. Of course, you knew who he no, was. No, he wasn't. Not at the time. Not until Bond. Okay, wow. Not at the time. Really? Yeah, no, she was with Darren Aronofsky before. No, no. Oh she, God, she's made some terrible choices. Of, they got together okay. instead of Dreamhouse, which came out in 2011, 2012. They got married a few five years after Bond. Yeah. yeah. No, she was with um, Aronofsky at the time. Yeah. Um, wow, yeah. No, people was, didn't know who. I think if you if you weren't someone who really follows stuff, you wouldn't know who Daniel Craig is most of the time. And it's usually like that with a new Bond. And you know what? Good for it her. She's upgraded piece of casting because Brosnan was relatively well known from Remington Steel. Daniel Craig was not only, oh, we don't, who's this random guy who's suddenly James Bond and known for playing oh, thugs. blonde, blue eyes. He looks yeah. a bit brutish. He looks like he's been hit by a wall. Um, I say that in the most oh, that's a bit harsh. He's a good looking guy. He's a good looking guy. Um, I mean, he it, did, it was great he did casting in, for reasons we discussed last week. He, he did come out in trunks in Casino Royale and like put that to rest. So I think everyone was pretty convinced. That if you look like that after you get hit by a wall, that's that's pretty okay. <laughs> His balls get hit by a wall in Casino Royale. <laughs> Can I just say that that scene, that scene, it's 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 a it's a great oh god cringe yeah. cringe torture scene, but it's so it extreme. Is. 
that like yeah. it takes me out of it because when I watch that, I'm like, James Bond is not going to be doing any more love making ever again if this actually happened. <laughs> yes. like, I love that, that line. So, like I've there's no recovering a, from that. <laughs> I, I, I've got a little itch down there. Do you uh, mind? <laughs> Everyone's oh, gonna know you died scratching my balls. It's so it's so well scripted, and it's straight it's, out of the novel. It is it is really well scripted. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's and the acted, most violent and It's the most violent torture scene in any Bond film. But look at that compared to the terrible scene Inspector where he draws oh, yeah. on the guy's head. He draws and it just nothing. does nothing. Bond is up running and shooting people. Now, you know what's a good torture scene? The one in Thunderball when he's tied to an exercise machine and they just dial it up. The same oh, yeah, that's cool. Um, in Moonraker, the same thing with the G-Force machine just going round and round and round. Um, yeah, there were good torture scenes. Oh, um, the Goldfinger one with the laser. <laughs> oh, yeah. A Bond special continues. Bond let special. me, let me. We, we can just go me, on talking about Bond. Let me, let me yeah. tell you about my plan. So, uh, yeah, so yeah, we're, we're telling you about our plans. We are going to cover Peter Weir in a coming week. We are going to cover Stan, but let us know what you want us to fight about because this is Maybe the part where you tell give us. Give us some suggestions. You know, we're not on much of a schedule at the moment. Yeah. Things, right. right now you have social media, so you can actually give us suggestions. So please yeah. do. Yeah. 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 Tune in social media. Um, have a wonderful night. Stay safe. Enjoy. Good morning, day, Good morning. afternoon. Enjoy. Yeah. And enjoy, seriously. Enjoy streaming movies with friends. I'm, I've got a few planned for the weekend. We're doing Android Webber, Jesus Christ Superstar. We're, co- we're going to cover um, this film, for, uh, this Matthew McConaughey film from the early 2000s, this cult flick, which I've never seen Fool's and gold. isn't available anywhere. Fool's Gold? Uh, no, I'm trying to think. That. It's the one we did with Kate Beckinsale. I've just been told I have to see it. Uh, because you love Kate Beckinsale. I don't know that. Oh, no, sorry. You're in love with Kate Beckinsale. Like, call, well, gentlemen don't prefer like, blondes, so yeah. You mean uh, Ooh, fan, just a, a movie that fans of five. Kate Beckinsale What? Like, are they the cult? <laughs> no, we, we could do a Kate Beckinsale episode. I would love to prepare for a Kate We're Beckinsale. not going to do a Kate Beckinsale episode. <laughs> can I just talk about <laughs> Underworld? I love Underworld. I love all those movies. I am down for every... I would be down for a marathon of those. I, 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 They're I, I all love, good. I love, I love Love and Friendship. That, that's a great film. But, that was good. Yeah. That's good. Whit Stillman. Actually, what would be cool is a Whit Stillman episode because that guy had been making oh, cool yes. movies for a long time and finally broke out with Love and Friendship. And I think a lot of people yes. don't I love, realize I love how good stuff like yeah, that okay. is. Love and Friendship is like yeah, the same thing, but trans- translated to Austin. It's great. I think it's on Netflix or Stan. It's on one of those. Love and Friendship? Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's on Stan, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So go get um, Stan. Yeah. Yeah. Alrighty, guys. On, on, have a good night. On, on have a good morning. <laughs> and take care. Hang on, Brett. Brett has the last last. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, there's right? many many attempts to say goodbye. This is the last one. This is the last one. Yeah. Goodbye. Bye. We're waiting on Brett. Oh. You can do it. Do it, Brett. What about you? What about you? You're saying goodbye. Okay, you're going to succeed before this yeah. podcast is done. Right. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.